This is Coda Radio, episode 480 for August 22nd, 2022. Good buddy, welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business, the software development, and the world of technology. I, a man trapped in time, my name is Chris, and I am joined by my time lord, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. So now I have to ask you which doctor you think I would be. See, you're going to do this? We're, we're turning into a Facebook quiz now. No, I think you're actually the time traveler in TNG that shows up and like puts his hands on the equipment and then makes the machines like go crazy. And then the machine has super warp speeds and all that. I think you're that guy. At least you didn't say I'm hardcore fence in mud, so I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would like to know what you did to Wesley. So <laughs> there is He's that. fine. He's, yeah, he's he's hanging out with the Klingons. He's having a great time. Um, my homie Takuvma is taking good care of him. It's all good. Oh, good, 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 good. Hanging out, hanging out, but not hanging out with you because you're going to be at TCG Con Tampa. I am. That mana tapping monkey is back on my back, known as Magic the Gathering. It's uh, oh, did I fall off the wagon hard? I'm. I you know what I like it. It's properly nerdy. I think it's good for you. You know, as I, I've already done a commander event and I'm going this week again to I think it's commander, again, which as someone who hasn't really played magic in like 10 years other than arena, uh, that's some crazy diabolical politicking stuff for folks who don't know. It's a weird. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a weird multiplayer format, but it's both competitive and cray cray. <laughs> So yeah, a lot of fun. TCG Con. I will be there at least Saturday. I might go Sunday, depending on how fast I get my ass kicked. Pretty good. If you're in the area, come say hi. I will be wearing something super nerdy. Really, this is the first one they're doing in Tampa. And the ticket prices reflect that. It's very affordable, surprisingly so. So yeah, I figured why not? I live literally like it's like a 30 minute drive or less. So Oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, I'm jealous. I <sighs> I have been like in a event drought and the events that I have been like that have been made possible what, what, like that I have been invited to, I guess <laughs> the words are hard today, just haven't really worked out, haven't been practical. So good for you. Get out there. Go say hi to Mike in Tampa. If you're in the Tampa area, I'm jelly. I'd love to go. I bet the weather is going to be great. I bet you'll get your butt kicked. That'd be great to watch. I'm, I'm sure I was going to say for you, it's watching me get stomped. But yeah, did you ever play magic? No, I never got sucked in. I, I don't know. Maybe I was just maybe I got sucked into other stuff. But magic, I somehow managed to avoid that in Pokemon. I managed to uh, avoid both of those somehow. Mm. Yeah, that's that's probably for the best. <laughs> it, I even got my kid into it. Yeah, I would. I would. I mean, let's be honest. I would, too. Right. Because that's fun. Uh, he also helps me sort the cards because, you know, child labor, it's the best kind of labor. That is. Yeah. They can, you know what? I know. I know by for a fact they can be good at card sorting. No, I won't tell you how I know, but I know for a fact. Nick knows for a fact that uh, he ain't kidding around no more. He's got S to do. Things have changed around. He says, hey, Chris and Michael, I want to say cheers to Chris. I don't remember exactly when I started listening to JB, but it was somewhere in 2012 or so. So. It's been 10 years for sure, so thanks for all the shows. Well, well thank you for listening. Now on to the main topic. I was doing some catching up on Coda Radio recently, and I stumbled on your discussion about macOS and Windows stealing Linux desktop users. Well, I'm a recent six months or so Windows convert after 10 years of exclusive Linux desktop use, so I wanted to chime in. I guess I'm older now, 
And while in 2012 I was a student, nowadays I have a day job with responsibilities. So I really like my machines to just sort of be appliances. You turn it on, it runs, does what I want. That's it. And honestly, desktop Linux has become too much of a hassle for me. As stupid as this might sound to some, Windows is the ultimate LTS. If you apply some basic best practices, like having a backup and not running <laughs> EXEs from sites with pictures of naked ladies, it just runs. Everything works because everything is written with Windows in mind. Further, besides WSL, I think Redmond has got two more things that might snare some Linux users. One is this new Windows terminal. The thing's good. Also, did you know SSH is installed and on by default now? You fire it up and you can SSH into Windows like it was a Linux box. The other thing I hear nobody mentioning is Hyper-V. Nowadays, we all have pretty beefy machines, so why not run VMs? Hyper-V is no problem for anybody that ever had to run Vert Manager. Its ultimate killer feature, though, is dynamic memory management that just works, meaning VMs do not use all the memory you allocate to them, but just what they need right now. I could run two, three, four Linux VMs daily and not even worry about memory at all. I know it's possible to do these kinds of things with KVM, but I just never managed to get it right. Here, it's just a checkbox. Do I find all of this problematic? No. No. Now that I don't run Linux, I run way more Linux. I have various Linux machines where I can tinker when time permits, and I use VMs daily for critical things like backups. And yeah, I am eyeing those damn MacBooks. It might just be a matter of time. Best regards. Of course you are. <laughs> you know, the only thing that strikes me about this, Nick, but otherwise I totally feel where you're coming from, is you might still be in the honeymoon period. You know, six months with Windows usually takes about a year, I find, with a Windows install. For your registry to be completely polluted, yes. Well, and just to start getting a little tired, you know, of the way Microsoft does things. Just that. But I do remember when we tried Windows 10 uh, for the show, which feels like ages ago, though. I do remember very much having what he said in here where, like, everything's just built for Windows. It's like you just you can get anything, any there's every application, even like the esoteric free software stuff. Is built for Windows, so like and it's there's only one Windows, really, so it's not like you, you know, you don't have to worry about dabs and RPMs. There's just the Windows build and everything supports Windows. It's so nice. <laughs> That's so nice um, as a Linux user that you don't always have that experience. It's pretty common these days. Sure. I mean, it's I don't know. I sort of feel like the Linux app compatibility stuff is kind of better than Mac at this point. Hmm. Because if you care about like games, I guess. Because still no viable Proton for Mac. I know people have sent me the link every time I say that, but that is a hell of a lot of work. All right, our next email comes in from Christopher, and he's dropping some Gladwell bombs. He says, hi, guys. I've been a show member since you returned, and I'm glad I have the opportunity to support you. Well, thank you, sir. Hmm. Just thinking about how damn thankful I am for our members this morning. So thank you. He goes on to say, your take on Malcolm Gladwell is spot on in Coder 478. I see him as a bit of a bomb thrower who enjoys intellectually tossing incendiary statements and watching the carnage of sociopaths abandoning their own thoughts and beliefs Jeez. without critically <laughs> analyzing what he's actually saying. What Gladwell is really saying against remote work is that work is a cult and you must stay in the compound. I like that he's like he says Gladwell is playing like 4D chess here. I like that he just went for it. I, that's pretty pretty hardcore. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I can't say that I'm super aligned with how colorful this opinion is, but I I definitely agree with the facts. I love it. I don't know if I do agree. I think Gladwell does believe what he was saying. So, quick recap for those that didn't hear it: we played a clip of Malcolm Gladwell, author, podcaster, who said, "You know, don't you want to be a part of something? 
don't you want to be your best you? Don't you want to do your best work of your life? Well, then you have to come into the office. That was basically his position. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I guess I don't agree with you then. I, I sort of feel like he, he says things like most people that align to his incentives and to his peer group. And, uh, I mean, I have read all his things in favor of working in a cafe or in a, I think it was like a pub that played some kind of cool rock music that he liked, right? So I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's people tend to just pitch their own book, right? Like, I, well, here's my thought, and I hate to be this guy, but maybe he's not a digital native, right? Maybe he's not fully aware of all the tooling available to remote workers these days. Because really, the best stuff is not used by most by most organizations. They're sort of like during the pandemic, we got to this new minimum quality bar, which was way better than it was before the pandemic. Like before the pandemic, most people didn't have cameras. Their Wi-Fi couldn't handle video conferencing. It was horrible. Right. And we got to this new bar. But that bar is basically Zoom. Right. And, you know, a MacBook camera and uh, AirPod microphones. I don't know. I mean, I think for for tech workers in particular and developers, I mean, some of the the uh, joint coding stuff or whatever we call that pair programming stuff in VS Code is really in a very short amount of time has become incredibly impressive. See, I think that's just it. I think that's the difference between a successful remote work culture and the picture that Malcolm Gladwell was painting. Malcolm Gladwell, I think, is painting the picture of the organization that doesn't take advantages of things like pair programming. But organizations like yours that are nimbler, uh, more up to speed on the tooling, more adaptable, more accommodating because of your size, you can employ things like VS Code pair programming extensions that would take years to make their way into an enterprise, right? And that's, I think, Malcolm's insight is the older school way of doing things, this Zoom level of quality for remote work, not your version, which is is much more dynamic it's it's just much more collaborative well it's also asynchronous by default right that that i mean for me you know because i've gone back and forth on the remote thing having to just give up on the idea that things are going to happen at the same time every day once i made that sort of mental shift a lot of my let's say irritation as you know the guy who owns the company went away not expecting like okay it's 10 o'clock where the hell is he right like that kind of thing there's a downside, right? The downside of that is people do get used to it. And occasionally you're going to have to literally, not aggressively, but you're going to have to do the old fashioned thing of just like call someone on their phone, even though they're not online, which I don't know why that feels super rude, but I feel like the culture has changed so much that just out of like calling someone about saying, hey, you have a minute for a call feels like super intrusive. But that's that's like the 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 you know the emergency move, right? That's what you Right. Do. Yeah. That's like when you call directly without like a, a text ahead of time like hey man you got a second like th that's like there must be something wrong what is it what's wrong what's wrong <laughs> right right yeah that's that's i don't know i mean i i would also add and i don't want to hit this too hard that i think a lot of this uh particularly for one I, I think there's probably a generational component here too right you know older generations like that are at the top of these large enterprises basically boomers probably it's just a lot of change for them, right? They've been in, think about this. If you're in your 60s or even early 70s and these young kids today are asked kids today in their 40s and 30s are asking you to change what you've been doing that was good for you, good for your dad, I think you'd fight. 
And let's not leave, let's not ignore the Larry Ellison thing here of ego. A lot of these guys are see themselves as like kings. And there's, and it's true that it certainly is appealing to walk into a, a place and like it's your domain, right? I would, uh, these are all my people. Everywhere these fluorescent lights touch is my kingdom. I would point you to what does look quite a bit like a penis the Salesforce Tower. I think I could just leave that one where it is, right? It's literally their castle. Yeah. Well, it's literally something else too, but it's <laughs> a very phallic castle. All right. So Jacob writes in kind of like with the context of, oh, I think everybody's everybody's feeling a little subscription exhausted. But uh, he says this is probably one of the most thoughtfully written reason explanations for a transition to subscription model. He says, I'm also super glad I bought the app early because I'm grandfathered in. This is a big transition we've been seeing in the Apple ecosystem. This move to subscription. And now I think one of the most famous independent apps, one of the most famous modern independent apps on the Apple platforms is Pixelmator. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it Photoshop wishes it was this good. I don't believe that I have. I use something called Acorn for that. And honestly, uh, the GIMP. So, you know, they took a lot of what makes Photoshop great and they just they worked on that. And then but they built it in the era of metal and modern Apple APIs. So they built something kind of for the Apple Silicon era and it's accelerated throughout. It's just it's one of those apps I'd love to have on Linux. But they they really point out and you know, this is true. The core issue is and they have a great visual that we'll have linked in the show notes. With the traditional type of model, your sales are really when you have a big new version and then you have a massive sales drop off, which will be the length of the development window. And then you have a, a smaller but noticeable spike in sales when it's come, when it's time for an upgrade. But the revenue is never quite what the original sales was, because for most people, they're just buying the upgrade price. Meanwhile, the baseline cost to run your business, especially these days, are always going up. So the revenue kind of peters off over time as people buy discounted upgrades. Meanwhile, base costs going up. The other thing they point out, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this specifically. One of the other issues with the upfront development paid model is they are essentially incentivized to hold features back to make releases big enough to get people to pay for them. So they'll sit, they'll hold a feature for a couple of months just to make it, you know, a, a good a good set of features that encourage you to upgrade. They have no way to do discounts via the App Store. This is a classic one. So they have that problem as well. There's no way to do proper trial on the iOS devices. So, you know, a lot of these typical issues combined with low price pressure on mobile devices for an app that is now, I don't know, 10 years old with a team of independent developers working on it full time. And they've been living on one-time payments. They actually make a really solid case for subscriptions. I have to give it a think, though, um, because I'm an occasional user when I'm on an iPad. I do use it on an iPad from time to time. If, I ha- if I'm on a Mac for more than a couple of days, I, gen- I generally install it. Because one of the things I love about it is the damn thing opens up Photoshop files like a champ. So it's like, oh, great. This is an opportunity for me to get you know some of my old graphics and get them out of a Photoshop format. And that's a, that's a huge opportunity. And it has... A really slick web export, you know, where you can export files like PNGs and WebPs and JPEGs specifically encoded for web pages. Like it's got a great tool for that. I just I I think it's a really nice tool. 
But honestly, I use it sparingly, once every few months. And uh, the pricing, albeit seeming fair, is $5 per month or $24 per year or $55 for a lifetime license. Existing paid users will be grandfathered in for free. This is pretty good. It's pretty generous. I'd like to know what you think. You know, I, I think we've been talking about independent app pricing and just generally making money off software products for 13, 12 years, something like that. It's been a while. And unfortunately, this is where we've landed, right? The predictions we made have come true in weird ways. I, I think maybe the duh aspect of this is they need to make enough money to be sustainable. And people are not, how can I say, acculturated to spending $100, $200 on a piece of software once a year anymore. So you get nickel and dime with subscriptions, which sometimes cost more, ironically. I can't see myself launching a product now that wasn't a type of either renewable or subscription or like an annual license that somehow didn't work once you didn't pay the license. Part of that is because a modern piece of software that's going to command any decent amount of revenue these days almost certainly has some sort of server component, which is an ongoing cost that you have to maintain. It probably has integrations with things like Google, Google Work, or I guess in this case, they must maintain Photoshop compatibility, right? Well, every time Photoshop in this case changes, I'm sure the Pixelmator folks have to go ahead and you know, fix it, right? They got to they gotta change their software. And dozens of other formats, no doubt. Right. And, and, and if they integrate, I don't know this piece of software, but I know like Alice, for instance, if when Google decides they're going to pretend like they give a crap about privacy and just make it ever so slightly harder to refresh auth tokens, they did this like a year ago. That's just a cost I have to absorb and then like the redeployment for every single instance. So I get it. I don't, I mean, I agree with Jacob that this kind of sucks, but part of the, a little bit of a devil's advocate here is the user expectations of everything just kind of working together and all your stuff being in the cloud is, uh, it just makes it more expensive. I mean, think about, I, I, I always come back to this because I just think it's really funny. Facebook's bad day where they pissed off Tim Cook, right? And he just shut down all the internal Facebook iOS apps with the stroke of a key. That's what's up, right? If... It's that's another form of dependency, another form of maintenance cost. You have to keep your stuff in compliance with all these third party things. Now, uh, Pixelmator, if it's a Mac app, I would bet my hat that it's at least notarized. If it's on the App Store, it certainly is, right? So, that's again, got to keep in compliance, got to keep updating to the new OS. God, if Apple changes their mind because it's Tuesday and they say it's privacy, but they want to be the only one to sell ads on iOS, you have to change something potentially. So, I mean, it's tough. It's uh, it, it's tough out there these days. You know, I yeah, and it makes me think the subscriptions aren't going away, right? This because the other this is a clear advantage for them in a development model. It's going to make it sustainable and predictable from a revenue standpoint for them. And so then I start thinking, all right, well, inarguably, the subscription model does make sense for some types of services and apps and and media and whatnot. So it's like. Well, then it seems like the job really falls on me now to just be more vigilant than I have in any other point in my lifetime about managing my subscriptions and my family's subscriptions. Because like Circus Freak points out in our Matrix chat room, 
you can have family members like my kids or my mom. You know, I've looked at their subscriptions. Thankfully, iOS makes it pretty easy to review. And I've seen $99 a year for a video editor that they wanted to use one time for a family video that, you know, they haven't done for, they haven't used for six months. And all kinds of just absolutely outrageous, totally scam subscriptions that I can't believe Apple lets in. So, like, they need to be better about that to make the market feel more comfortable about this. I need to be more vigilant about it because it's easy to get subscription creep. And then those of us who have a subscription, like the, you know, the QA uh, membership and Jupiter Party, like I've got to always be working to make that subscription more valuable. Like it, it, you can't just create it and then leave it there. And that's the lesson I'm internalizing right now. And it's like, okay, so now we've got we've got a whole other list of projects to just bring more features to our member feeds because uh, if I'm going to ask for a subscription revenue, I got to keep it competitive. I got to keep adding stuff to it. I got to keep creating value. And I think that's something that's going to make the difference between su- the successful programs and failures and successful developers and failed developers. Yeah. And one, uh, one other uh, model that I, I meant to mention a couple weeks ago, but I forgot. So like, I use OmniGraffle quite a bit, which uh, is like a really pretty Mac. Uh, what would you call it? A diagramming tool? Yeah, of sort of like the Visio kin, but maybe a little bit easier and not quite as hardcore, maybe? Not quite as hardcore, although if you download some of the extensions, it gets wild. But And there's an iPad app, but I generally use it on the Mac because big screen, complicated systems, yay. And they will sell this piece of software to you in one of two ways. One way is a annual or monthly subscription. The other way is straight up. And if I, I've never bought the regular version, I use the pro versions, 250 bucks. But if you buy the straight up, what happens is to use their kind of cloud syncing system, you have to subscribe to that. So what they've effectively done, and I think this is actually, I was annoyed when I first saw it, but then I'm thinking about it and having a little empathy as a fellow kind of independent developer. The cloud service is an ongoing maintenance cost and potential, I guess, you know, they have to maintain security, servers, whatever. So they're just breaking that out and charging for that. It's uh, not the craziest thing. The other thing I should add, if you do the subscription, which they definitely want you to do, you also get the iOS version. If you do the traditional, you only get the macOS version. Yeah, I guess I see what you're saying. Yeah. I, I also, but I look at those kinds of things and I go, could they have just used iCloud and then not charged me? But all right. I'm sure they want to do more things than what iCloud will allow. And you're right. It is a reasonable revenue stream. Clearly, though, this is a topic that people are still adjusting to. I'd like to hear your thoughts out there. Coder.show slash contact or boost it in with a new podcast app or tell me in person. The meetups cometh meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting, the West Coast road tour made possible by Linode. It is another Linode on the road event. I just had a call with Linode last week. I think it was Thursday. There's some new swag that they're going to be including that uh, they've uh, they haven't really got out there much because there hasn't been many events. We have a new shirt design that we're working on for the trip that we'll be giving out. And then we're also going to do geocaches and we'll stash some of that stuff along the way. So even if you can't make it to a meetup, but you're in the area, you might be able to find the geocache. So we got some fun stuff as well as a matrix room to help coordinate it all. We'll have links to all of that. In the show notes, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. For that, it's coming up real soon now. Linode.com slash Coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account and go there to support the show. I love Linode. It's fast, reliable cloud hosting with the best support in the business. Right there. Real humans every day 
all day when you need them. Linode's how we run everything we've built for the last few years. It's how we are building our new website right now. Yeah, it's on Linode. We walk what we talk here. We really do love hosting everything on Linode. They are super fast. They have 11 data centers around the world. And they're 30 to 50% cheaper than the hyperscalers who just want to upsell you and lock you in all the time. It just is a no-brainer. And on top of all of that, with all of the data centers to choose from, with object storage, with all of their great features like VLAN support, the ability to provision things using things like Ansible and Kubernetes, we can deploy infrastructure as we need. And it has been something to watch this team go. Our community with Brent and Alex building this website has been incredible. And the infrastructure they deploy in one day would have taken me a month or two to deploy just, you know, a few years ago. You really have to try it out because it just takes your flexibility, your agility, your reach to a whole other level. You can play at a level that you would think would cost you thousands of dollars a month. And they have systems that start at $5 a month. And you go to linode.com slash coder and you get a $100 credit on top of that. I just think it's such a great opportunity to try something, build something, put it in production for a bit, see how it does. $100, you can really kick the tires. Go support the show. Try it out for yourself. Linode.com slash coder. One more time, it's linode.com slash coder. Oh, it's almost here. And I'm not talking about fall. I'm talking about .NET 7. And you know, Mr. Dominic, uh, I remember a time when .NET was just brand new. <laughs> I really do, too. It's so sad. When our ASP was like our Coca-Cola classic. Oh, man. Remember how everything was active for a while? Active uh, everything. Yes. I, I, oh. Wild security holes. Yeah. We moved forward a little bit, just a little bit forward in time to uh, .NET 7 Preview 7, which came out just a few days ago as we record this here podcast. Yeah, there's some there's some good stuff in here. A couple things of note. If you are a Xamarin slash Maui developer, you can be really excited to wait. So <laughs> no .NET 7 for you yet, because Maui is the project curse um, in time to constantly be behind. I think it's Xamarin. No, Xamarin is... Uh, I So it's weird. So Maui is based on Xamarin. I think it's Mui. <laughs> Movie. I'm sorry. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> I don't even know. You totally made me lose track. All right. Yeah. So, but there are some good features at .NET 7. The usual crowing about performance and portability. Great work, Microsoft. Nicely done. Simplified rate limiting. Rate limiting. So, this is obviously for like the server side stuff, right? Like ASP. Rate limiting is a pain in the butt on all platforms. So, simplifying it sounds good. I looked at the code and the uh, samples they put up. Very magical. We'll see. I like it. The one that really got me was this minimal API enhancement section. And I put it in, in quotes in the doc. Yeah. Because basically, I guess they have listened to people making fun of C Sharp for being somewhat verbose compared to, say, your, you know, your Pythons of the world. And they're effectively making the API calls just a lot cleaner and simpler for your APIs, right? So again, this would be like you're writing a REST service or something like that um, on the back end. It's boring. It, like if you think about it, it's okay, you have to type of But I, I found the examples they gave versus the, uh, the old style of doing it very readable and oddly Pythonic. Yes, I'm, I'm using that because I coined it last week. I'll take it. I think this is a great use. And I don't know. It made me 
not want to install Windows 11, but hey, you could .NET's cross-platform. You can open VS Code on any platform and do this. So this is just a preview. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Still, still, the thorn in the lion's paw of Microsoft is goddamn Maui. It's just, this thing has been taking so long, and it's a crazy ambitious plan, right? It's, a, it's another flavor of right once, run everywhere. But if they actually pull that off, and they can actually hit these performance metrics across platforms with you know reasonable variances, that is going to be pretty substantial. There's a bunch of stuff about Blazor too in this. I don't care about Blazor. I'm very skeptical of Blazor because... You know, anytime you try to avoid JavaScript and HTML and CSS, you just make more pain for yourself. Just embrace our JavaScript overlords and move on. Now, don't send any pictures to your kid's pediatrician, though. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Um, that's a little tease. So before we get there, do you agree with the statement that areas of Microsoft that really seem to be executing just continuously for years is this .NET, and I would include just sort of the Linux area in general, the people that are creating some of the tools that they're releasing as free software, those projects, they're consistently performing on them, right? And it's on a, on for years now. I feel like there is some aspects of Microsoft that are waning and teetering a bit. Office. Yeah. This, but this feels like an area that has just remained at, at just solid performers, just executing nonstop. You know, I know this isn't the most pro Microsoft audience in the world, but a couple of years ago, they had the goal of we will make .NET platform agnostic and it will be one .NET. And they certainly had some, they had a journey there, right? We had .NET Core, we had all that crap. Uh, it's basically, if you're using all the modern stuff, it is .NET standard, which is now just .NET. It's they got it the the with the one crazy hook hiccup of Maui, but we'll see how seven point final goes. But doesn't it feel like they've really hit their stride? I I think if they if they pull this off, and the reason I keep harping on Maui is because the, the missing piece has always been the front end. But at at this juncture, I mean, some of the performance benchmarks that they're claiming, so I you know who knows in the .NET seven preview. It's significantly, it's, it's fast. And even compared to like .NET 6. So if, I don't know, our dark matter devs out there, in five to six years when you guys can upgrade to .NET 7, uh, will, you, will you be happy? I mean, I would bet. I'd like to know. It feels to me like if these teams continue to execute, the Azure teams continue to execute, this is Microsoft's game to lose right here. Google is just really falling apart. They just don't execute anymore. We're about to get there, so I'll give more context. You know, Apple is focused on Swift and their platform, right? It's a different game they're playing. Microsoft is playing the entire market game. Enterprise, individual developers, independent open source developers. You know, they have moments where they do things like they suspend the account of a free software developer who created Tornado Cash, and everybody goes, ooh, maybe that's a sign. But that's not really blowing it, right? Most people said, ah, that's for criminals anyways. Who cares? And they moved on without giving it another thought, unfortunately. It really feels like this is Microsoft's game to lose at this point. .NET is just a part of that, but one of their strongest parts of that strategy. I'm impressed to see it. But okay, let's talk about this Google thing. Because it's what our chat room is talking about right now as we record. Because last night, I think it was, an article came out in the New York Times 
about a dad who sent photos from his Android device of his baby's groin to a doctor, you know, doing like telemedicine, which is becoming super common. And then Google disabled his account and reported him to the police because their CSAM scanner flagged him for child porn. It took about two days after he took the pictures. And then Mark's phone made a notification noise. His account had been disabled due to harmful content that was, in quote, a severe violation of Google's policies and might be illegal. Then he had a, quote, learn more link that led to a possible list of reasons. You've seen these Google help pages, I'm sure. And one of the many reasons on the page was, quote, child sexual abuse and exploitation. It took the dad, Mark, a little bit to even figure it out because he didn't think of this right at first. But then he realized, oh, God, a couple of days ago, I did take those pictures. And Google probably thinks that was porn. This led to an investigation into the dad. And uh, I'm not sure, probably by the time this episode comes out, we'll have some resolution. But as we, as we record, he still doesn't have access to his Google account, even though he's been cleared by the police. And all he did was take pictures of his kid with his own device. But because he uses Google Photos and they're scanning your photos, they detected this. And consider this, too, right? In this situation, this wasn't a picture that matched a pre-existing model out there, right? These photos were unique. There was no hash in any law enforcement database for these pictures of his kids growing. And Google still found them. So they're looking at everyone's stuff. And they're not just looking for pre-existing images. They're looking at each individual picture, all of your stuff, and they're throwing their various models at it, which appear to be very um, accurate. I would say classified as intended. But context matters in these situations. And it just happened automatically. All he did wrong was use an Android device. And let's be honest. We know it won't be very long until... This is the same situation on iOS. It almost was. It wasn't in this last OS release, and they postponed it. You and I are both dads, but this just drives me crazy. Oh, this one, I just a few months ago had a conversation with a friend who she just had a child uh, not so long ago. And she's like, oh, I sent a cute picture of him, you know, in the bathtub to my mom. I said, just do not do that again. <laughs> Don't. Then, Yeah. This is literally the reason why I told her not to do that, right? I said, you don't understand everything, which then she thought I was a tinfoil hat maniac. But uh, yeah, I I would say, I mean, I, I read some of the responses to this, which I thought were chilling, to be honest with you, that, you know, well, the classifier worked and there was a human review and the human review referred it to the police who, without saying anything, started an investigation, pulled all his account information, including apparently some, I guess, intimate photos of some woman or something. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's fine that, you know, he didn't get charged. So that worked, right? The system worked. But think about that. His entire life was now just on a bunch of, you know, San Francisco detectives desks. Or San Diego detectives. Yeah, well, and this also, these pictures got forwarded to a team internally at Google. And so the police are looking at his kid's crotch. A team of people at Google are looking at his kid's crotch. And all he did was telemedicine. Well, and not only that, but they pulled not just, like, the stuff off his phone. They pulled his entire Google account, emails, you know, possibly, like, text arguments because the police got a warrant. How, by the way, the fact that an automated flag can be used to trigger probable cause for a hyper-invasive warrant is just 
that then gives them your entire Google account, your search history, all of his location history, all of his messages, all of his Google Docs were all given over to law enforcement because of this process automatically. And these were not. So the CSAM promise was that there would be hashed photos that are known to the authorities to be child pornography. This was not that, right? This was using machine learning to basically just like, you know, hot dog, not hot dog, right? Silicon Valley from the old, from the HBO show. So they're more, now I, it's, it's hard because you can't say, well, don't police this, but this kind of seems like a wild overreach. It's chilling the more we talk about it. It's just absolutely chilling because an accidental triggering of this process then invokes a discovery process which could find all kinds of things potentially that you know you never thought would be public and i don't know it's just this is super chilling this this feels like a deal breaker for me i have to be honest with you uh, google photos is such a remarkable product but my god and there's not so much other metadata in those photos including the faces of your family like i have a family member who's never never been on social media ever he's just you know his late 60s never has ever created i don't even know if he has a google account i know he has a microsoft account but i don't know if he has a google account and you know in, so in theory he would have no social media footprint except for family members have taken pictures of him and put him on social media and we've uploaded him to our google photos and tagged his name and we you know on the back end google can build a network of all of the different people who have that person's face in their photo library well the, the interesting thing was that in this case just to bring it just particularly well the police cleared him and said it was a misunderstanding so good on the police for not just like i mean i'm i'm sure this guy was horrified right because you got the full weight of the government and you're accused of something heinous so it's it, could you imagine could you imagine how wrecked his life was for a period of time oh yeah persona and agrada right but google still wouldn't give him his account back Right. It just destroyed all his data. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's like, what the fuck? So uh, what do you do? Because the other problem is, is like, what happens if your kid does this? You know, your kids are screwing around. I had a situation. I can't remember if I mentioned it on the show or not. But my daughter recently was looped in because her watch has a has a phone number. Mm. And she was looped in to a text message thread with other kids in her school during summer break about uh, causing harm to another student. My red alert alarm goes off immediately like now she's involved in a text message thread where kids are joking about causing harm to another student. And all my daughter did was just get automatically looped in and they just won't stop and they won't stop. And, you know, of course it gets reported. And that kind of stuff could also just automatically get scanned and flagged. And it just feels like there's so many ways to accidentally get drawn in to where now your entire account contents get handed over. And the only way to really kind of prevent this sort of thing is to opt out of the legitimately nice to have features like Google maps. Cause they also gave us the entire location history and Google photos and your photos are for some of us, the most precious thing we own. So there, there's another version of this. Um, oddly enough, I think it was the wall street journal that published this story. The IRS in that new wonderful bill that everybody's so excited about is putting aside a ton of money for machine learning and social media analysis to try to catch tax cheats. <laughs> but what is a tax cheat? What if, let's say, your grandma dies or you're, you, know, you inherit some money and you like buy a car? 
same thing. Well, this is an anomalous thing. You said you only made, you know, $30,000. How did you buy that? Whatever, right? Just Chevy, who cares? That's where we're going with this. Everything is going to be analyzed against some model. I mean, I could I could think about how to write this model right now. Okay, I have a single dad who makes, you know, say $100,000 or, you know, claims to make 50. He lives in this zip code, average cost of living, plus incidentals. He should have this type of profile on, let's say, Insta, Facebook, whatever. Ooh, this dude looks like he's more in that 100 105, 110 bracket than 50. Look at this picture of a Tesla. You know, you can automate, hey, we've identified a Tesla in this guy's photo feed. And you could automate this. Let's trigger, because I, if you've ever been audited, they start with a paper audit, right? They just say, show us documentation. And then they escalate up to, uh, you know, a real audit and then a potentially criminal, criminal charge. That seems real scary. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's. And we privatized it. We've privatized it. Yeah, That's they're gonna the, have con- it's going to be contracted out, right? This is the most beautiful thing about it is uh, all this information. It's all packaged up and uh, beautifully delivered to the state automatically through this process. But it wasn't the state that collected the information, right? It's so beautiful. It's just a both parties get to wipe their hands of any responsibility there. Oh, I did my part. Oh, I'm doing my part. So the same law. And the reason I'm dunking on this law is because I'm not trying to be political. I'm just saying there's a lot of bad in this law. Welcome to Unfiltered. Someone in Congress decided maybe it would be a good idea if the Defense Department, who isn't supposed to spy on American citizens, certainly not in the country, would have to disclose when they purchase the data from data brokers of American citizens. What an idea. The fact that they're routinely doing that is... We didn't, we didn't break the Fourth Amendment. Oh, well, I don't know how the hell they got the data, but we didn't break the Fourth Amendment. Right. We're just buying a product from a private organization. Hey, they're a contractor. They went through the whole vetting process. They're in the, uh, they have an, an what is it, the Vienna? I forgot the code, the, but the, you know, the government classification code. So it, that's fine, right? That's totally cool. What, what Fourth Amendment? By the way, you know who was already doing that? The IRS. Now they want to automate it further and do it themselves with machine learning. Can I just say that this is what happens? When you when people learn about this crap that Google's doing and Apple will be doing soon and Microsoft too, I'm sure if not already, this is this is this is like you're two steps away from like this conversation we're having now. This is what happens because you start to realize, holy crap, this entire system is just designed to really take advantage of me if I make one mistake, and I I can't help but think the only thing one can do, and yet I'm not doing it, even though I try. The only thing you can do is not participate. Go listen to self-hosted. I, I just just one last point on this, and I, then we probably should move off the unfiltered stuff. <laughs> they they justified all of this crap, all of this crap that it's now evolved into, with two main things: the classic, but think of the children, which I'm sympathetic to, but they didn't stop at you know protecting children, and goddamn nine eleven. If you if you were to take a guy from, let's say, the 70s, even at the height of protests, and tell him how much surveillance is just routinely done in a mass way on American citizens, they probably wouldn't believe you. Because that sounds a lot like uh, the Soviet Union. My last thing on this is really shame on Google. Because yet another tool they've built that is hostile to the user and pro-establishment. And I, what I mean by that is... They could have built this thing where maybe the offender is presumed innocent 
And maybe there is a little bit more of a check and balances before like the kids crotch is showed to a team of people at different agencies. Maybe the, maybe the person could be presumed innocent, but they never do that. Same with uh, YouTube, right? This episode will get flagged. Every single live stream does. I didn't play anything copyrighted, but it will get, I've had my own voice. I've literally had my voice in the intros get flagged. They assume I'm guilty by default. All their tooling always does. They assume I'm in the wrong. They're minimizing their legal liability. It gets to the core of these giant, mega-rich corporations that have dumped on the market to get incredible market share, have never built out the support department that even comes even just a tiny percentage, a tiny fraction of the size of their actual user base. They're trying to become kings without having any support. And so you get a situation where this guy, this guy might get his account back now that the New York frickin' Times wrote about it. But otherwise, he'd be SOL. It, he's not. He's not. So Google, it's it's their policy. There have been, they, according to the reporter in the Times, there is, have, she was on Twitter uh, elaborating. There have been other cases almost exactly like this. And Google's policy is once you're flagged, you're flagged. Well, of course, this isn't the first one. Of course, this isn't. My God, I wonder how many other lives they've completely destroyed with this. What if it was his Google work account? Just like take his whole business offline? What if the guy was in the process of a, a divorce, right? And his ex-wife tried to leverage this against him during the divorce proceedings. Like, could oh, you, what if this about that? Yeah. I mean, imagine if this kind of investigation leaked public for somebody who's, you know, uh, in, a, in a public position or something like just it could destroy someone's life or career. It would destroy his life. And we're just not even hearing about it. And they, all, the, all of these, all these systems just assume that the person is guilty by default because it's the least amount of work. It's the least amount of cost. It's the least amount of friction with law enforcement policy. And it doesn't require a support department. We're the product, right? We are the product, not the customer. But I sure can't wait for that new pixel. <laughs> all right. And, and by the way, if you don't, if we've been pretty harshing on Google. If you don't think Apple and Microsoft do stuff like this, Apple to a lesser degree, but they're going to. Google's probably just the best at it. And Facebook, Facebook's already doing this at, at large scale. Yeah. But if you pay in rubles, you're fine tailscale.com slash coder tailscale is a zero config vpn it installs on any device in minutes and it manages your firewall rules it'll take care of your double nets and your devices connect directly to each other using a mesh network protected by wireguards noise protocol that's it right there that's the concept but it is a game changer. And I, I don't know. I don't think uh, I don't think I know the term because I was never really into like a band before they got popular. But that's how I feel with Tailscale right now. So I think you know what I mean, right? Like, I feel like I was into Tailscale just a little bit before it got popular. And now I see folks talking about the way Tailscale changes the way they work all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. I've been telling people about it. I hope they went to Tailscale.com slash coder. I don't know. But you can. You can support the show and you can try it out. Tailscale allows you to build a flat network protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. And it even supports DNS. So if you want to throw a DNS server in that flat network, you can start resolving machines by their name. They've also recently introduced Tailscale SSH, which allows you to establish an SSH connection between your devices on the Tailscale network. And you can control access with the built-in ACL controls in Tailscale. You don't have to manage SSH keys. And you can authenticate the SSH connection using WireGuard. The whole thing is mind-blowing. I'm going to play with it this weekend, get everything all ready for the road trip coming up, because I've already got all my devices in Tailscale. 
So yeah, I'm going to take advantage of this. I use Tailscale to maintain my kids' computers, my friends, my family, and my work systems. It's so great because you can also share a single node with somebody, and I find that really useful, really super useful. And I've just no longer have any inbound ports on my firewalls. I've just turned them all off. They're all off now, guys. Guys, no inbound traffic at all. That's the way it should be. Tailscale made that possible. Just a game changer. Game changer. You want your, you want your game changed? You want to know what that actually means? People say it all the time. What does it actually mean? Go find out. Tailscale.com slash coder. I mean it. I love it. Tailscale.com slash coder. Well, let's talk about a little development. I don't know. Maybe some programming. Something related to coding because I need to change the subject. Okay. So are we coding a bunker? And uh, <laughs> No. So, so I have been for a while now using Ionic again, which for folks who don't know, Ionic is a cross-platform mobile webby uh, framework. I want to say it's really more of a collection of stuff, but that focuses on web-based mobile development. Uh, there's three flavors of it, React, Vue, and the good one, Angular. So I'm, of course, using Angular because I am not a heathen, nor a Facebook fan. And I'd just like to talk about it a little bit because it's pretty cool. It is totally TypeScripty. A lot of really cool native plugins. If you've ever done PhoneGap development, God rest its soul. Oh, yeah. You know that PhoneGap became Cordova. And the folks at Ionic have come out with an open source project called Capacitor, which is compatible with Cordova, but in many ways better, mostly in the ways of performance. It is really neat. This kind of development methodology of doing basically web views but having hooks into native apis and into native hardware functionality it's so much better if you did this like five years ago it was pretty jank but today it is so good i mean i was surprised i was able to get bluetooth connections working easily i was able to write a small custom thing for a scanner so low level stuff low level stuff as long as you know the lords of cupertino actually allow it natively yeah of course and then you have to write a typescript wrapper or could be javascript right uh, and hook it in and register the component if you've done angular before same kind of idea um, just capacitor you know the if you've ever done like extension development or even like a mod for a game or like minecraft it's the same idea of you write your little thing you put it in, you got to register it with the application, rebuild the whole thing so it builds it in, and huzzah. So they're taking this a step further, and I, I think they have two things that are interesting. AppFlow, which I'm currently doing a trial of, it's kind of a build-in-the-cloud solution for all your horrific code signing needs. I have some feelings about it. One thing that I do like is if you have a very small only HTML, JavaScript, CSS change, you can actually deploy that without going through the App Store. Are they creating build environments for you? Yeah, that's what they're doing. Yeah. You still have to upload like a signing key. Uh, but once you upload it, you know, the keys expire, I think like once a year, something like that. Wow, the infrastructure to do that must be super impressive. Well, they're also charging for it, right? So Of course, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> the bill is... Not that bad, actually, but it's 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 it was big enough that it's something I actually had to think about right before I like ah sure. But so the deal with this is if if it's just a web change, 
you can basically deploy it. Now you have to comply with Apple's, you know, rules. So there's some gray area of like how big of a change is it? But for all like if it's a oh my god, we had a typo on our about page, something like that, right in our app, you can change it. Anything that needs a native integration, unfortunately, has to go through the app store. They also support, which I thought was really interesting, using this app flow system as basically your own little private test flight, but like the old test flight where you just have like your client or your your small internal team and you're sending bills or just updating the build for the tester silently on the app. That is super cool. I can't tell you how many Trello tickets or back in the battle days, Jira tickets I've had open and after like an hour of walking through on the phone with the dude. It was like, hey, man, did you get the build from like three days ago? Oh, no, I'm on the, I'm on the old build. Sorry, man. Yeah, dude. Well, we changed the API, so you got to, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's just freaking peachy. The other thing I'm just starting to evaluate that I have kind of, I have some fifis about. Portals. They call it I, I, portals. So I'm just going to read their little press clipping. Micro frontends for mobile. Portal micro frontends allow multiple teams to build, test, and ship in parallel with hyper-focused embedded web experience in your React Native, Android, or iOS apps. So basically, let's say you have an iOS team, an Android team. You have a basically native app, right, more or less. But you just want some stupid like checkout views or you know some kind of registration view. And you want it to be uniform and you don't want to spend a lot of time developing it twice. You could just develop it in one of these portal web views, install this portal SDK, and it would be taken by either platform and intelligently remap to the default type of uh, controls. Oh, man, that sounds like the promised land. Well, it reminds me of those. Uh, what did Google call them? Like the little applets? I know it wasn't applets, but you didn't have to download the whole app kind of thing. Yeah, like this, like the Snap apps. Kind Snap of like app. A, yeah, yeah. Was that what it was? I know both Apple and Google were experimenting with this, but Google was first. I can't remember. I never really. I've seen like a couple of them, but like they're app sheets essentially. App sheet. No, I think it was sheets. I think it was called sheets. So the the interesting thing about this is you can apparently, and I've done some testing. It seems to work. Use capacitor plugins in the portal view, even if the you know Xcode project is not built for capacitor. So even if you're your, you know, golden MacBook, <laughs> drinking tea out of a bowl, Swift developers have no idea and will not add that filthy, filthy capacitor.framework to their project. Of course. You don't need their permission anymore. Tell them, put your feet off the desk, you know, Stop it, hippie. We'll do this on the web. I like that. I still firmly believe that the web technologies are going to you know, consume everything much like uh, the Borg. What I don't buy right now is that Apple is not going to stop this. Because <laughs> it seems, in theory, that you could tie these two things together and implement functionality after you've passed app review that would have not been reviewed and I guess if it's significant enough, would technically violate the terms? I, I could totally see what you're saying, but it feels like that that ship has sailed. There are so many apps now where you're, even the settings pane, they're all web views, but you don't even really know. 
in fact, like the whole Uber UI, both for Eats and the app, they can add and remove elements from the UI on the back end. I think Marco does this with Overcast as well, as well as other apps, obviously. Yeah, he has a couple of these. Yep. So it kind of feels like that ship has sailed already. Like, there's no going back now. But this is taking it to a whole other level. So I could see what you're saying, but... Well, one, Ionic is not super huge, right? So will Apple notice? And my impression of kind of chatting with the community on their forums is Ionic is really, really loved by like people like me, right? People who develop internal line of business apps for other companies. I am very tempted because I need an app that can scan my Magic the Gathering cards and put them in an inventory for me. <laughs> of course. Which obviously needs to be updated all the time and it needs deep native integration, right? And it needs to be highly secure. I'm talking end-to-end encryption here. Oh my God. You, you don't get to know how many, uh, how many dark rituals I did today. <laughs> and they were dark, Chris. Google knows and the FBI is on their way, but... Yeah, you you took a photo with your Android phone, so they know. I took a photo of a hot dog, and Google made a horrible, horrible mistake. (laughs) That model needed a little more training. You know what? That's not funny. That poor bastard. I'm sorry, I went backwards, but that poor bastard. Wow. (sighs) Yeah. I don't know. I think this kind of thing is the future. And this is what scares me about Maui. Every time someone wants to bet against the web, they basically just get B-slapped. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be the web? Didn't NASA just send up something that was, you know, like, Rust and C++ under the hood, but the front end was basically React.js. And when does the absolutely best technology win? You know, when does that happen? Like, I'm not saying this web stuff isn't the best technology, but you might argue like the native applications using native controls, that's the best. Okay, for iOS users, but, you know, when does that ever win? The, The general computing platform always wins. It always does because that's the one everybody can write to. It's the one everybody gets access to. It's the most accessible. It's the great, it's the great neutralizer. Well, also like, you know, VHS beat beta, right? It's a little skewed. And I'd be curious for people who are doing more consumer facing applications, because in my little corner of the world, like double native, are you doing a Kotlin app or Java app? And, a you know, I guess Swift could be Objective-C though, app isn't going to happen. No one's paying, no, no project manager or product manager is going to authorize, you know, a six-figure budget for their internal one app. They may authorize stuff like that for like an entire suite of apps with a backing, you know, backend service and databases and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I mean, all of my customers are, you know, the non-Alice ones, right? The ones who are doing like mobile projects. It's all this web stuff. Either that or it's like Xamarin. And I, and uh, God damn it, Chris. Just... You know, I'm already sad because, you know, I started the morning on Twitter, morning sun, oh. yet again. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you thought we'd get away with not mentioning the death of our dearly departed sun, sun microsystems. I felt the need to correct that before I got the email or tweet, oh my God, your son died. No, not my son, the son. Son. It's Java Duke. So I don't know. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear from you. Those of you who are riding that Marco train and trying to do like very tasteful, thoughtful, direct-to-consumer apps, does it have to be Swift? Does it have to be Kotlin? Although I've seen Android apps and you guys are not doing great. Can it be a web app? Am I wrong? Am I too deep in the dark matter developer enterprise-y crap? I'd like to know. Coder.show slash contact or boost it in with a new podcasting app. Boost to gray. So let's get through a couple of these because it's just about the end of the show. 
And so something that uh, we're doing on the other shows, we'll eventually be doing it here on Coder too, is we've set a 2,000 sat limit to get on the show. And then going forward, we may make further adjustments. But I wanted to say something really briefly, even though I know we're going kind of long. The boosts represent a fundamental paradigm shift for podcasting. Super quickly, if you're a YouTuber and you make content on YouTube that the algorithm likes and promotes, there's a built-in path to revenue. It's a captured path where you're dancing for the algorithm, but there's a built-in way to monetize. There's a model for YouTube. There's no model. There's no built-in path for podcasting. So every podcaster comes up with their own bespoke approach to try to monetize and make revenue so that way they can do their passion. And, and whenever you get serious about something, you need to do it full-time because of the amount of focus and attention it requires. And what you're seeing right now is podcasters are flocking to dynamically inserted ads. I got a note from Optimus Gray who said he was listening to an English-spoken podcast and he got a dynamically inserted ad in Spanish. And they're just never really a great fit for the show. We're also seeing a massive consolidation with Spotify, Apple, Google, and Libsyn, who are trying to centralize podcast advertising and drive their rates way down, which is also going to starve the podcast industry. And podcasters are acquiescing to these pressures because there is no model to follow. There is no real like light at the end of the tunnel. You have to create your business from whole cloth. And so the issue with all of these platforms, Libsyn, Spotify, Apple, Google, is the incentive is to please the platform provider and operator, their algorithm or whatever they have, not the audience. The audience isn't the customer. Boosts represent a fundamental shift for podcasting because it is a truly, and I mean truly on the technical sense, a truly decentralized, no middleman network that's all based on free software that's built into the podcast app that specifically rewards the creator when they create something of value that the audience enjoys. So it's a fundamentally structured incentive system tilted towards the audience because the creator gets rewarded when the audience creates good content for them, not for the algorithm, not for Spotify's front page, but for the audience. And boosts represent the first time in 15 years of podcasting that there could actually be a built-in path to revenue for podcast that rewards content creators based on the quality of their content with no middleman taking a skiff, tilting the wheels of content. It's a massive fundamental shift. So we are trying to figure out how to incorporate them in a way that doesn't like, you know, add 20 minutes to the show. But at the same time, they represent possibly a savior to the medium that is undergoing right now extreme centralization pressures that I don't go on about as much as I probably should because of the existential threat, but I know how much it drives everybody crazy and I just try to contain that in office hours. But that is the context in which we find ourselves in the boost era. And so your support via memberships and your support via boosts are building a pathway that I'm not even exaggerating. This is not, this is not overstating the, the, the situation could literally save independent podcasting. So let's with that, let's read a couple of these before we get out of here. And I want to start with our over 9,000 boost from Bronzewig. It's over 9,000! With 9,001 sats. Chris and Mike, I wonder what you guys think about this Android initiative. And I took a look at it. And Google is going all in on uh, green versus blue bubbles. They've produced a video to shame Apple even. 
The green bubble versus the blue bubble. Why is this a thing? See, Apple uses SMS and MMS. You remember that technology from the 90s? Anytime their customers want to communicate with someone outside Apple's sphere, limiting them to low-res video, no encryption, and no red receipts. You know, that that old tech from the 90s? And the whole thing, it's this whole this whole pitch to shame, to have the uh, the public shame Apple to fix their texting. Ironically, though, um, it seems to be backfiring a bit. Because people don't like RCS that have gotten it. <laughs> this is dumb. I mean, you know, it's a competitive market. Uh, iMessage is really, really good. I know people don't like it when I say that. And you know Google, what I like about it? Hmm. iMessage bypasses the carriers. Yep, that's what's good about it. <laughs> that's that's why it's better. RCS is dependent on the carriers. And I'm sorry, I, I, that's just not a solution I think that's better for the market. Yeah, they're they're not the most innovative, fast-moving lot over there at the carriers. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. I think this is sour grapes. I get why they're doing it. The iMessage lock-in, and we've gotten the emails. I don't want to jump into the whole blue-green bubbles thing again. But yeah, the, <laughs> you know, the iMessage lock-in is strong. It's a problem because, like, I will be buying an iPhone every two years for the rest of my life now. I agree. And can I be ignorant now? This next boost is to educate myself. User 77.9, probably need to set your username in Fountain. They boosted in with uh, 2,022 sats. And this is me being completely ignorant. I've never, I've never used a, a computer sold out of the EU. I've never used, you know, I don't, I don't know this, but he says the EU is glorious. You get four spaces in Python, two in JavaScript. Is there some, is, is spacing done differently in the EU than it is in the States? Is this, no, no. Is this a thing? <laughs> what is he talking about? I think he's just saying the EU is glorious because we kept dunking on it last week. You're right. They're two separate things. Two separate things. Okay. So you're, yeah, well, you have to use, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And okay. Vim, All right. Fine. Good on you. You should post your Vim RC. I wasn't even going to read the part about Vim. I'm so sick of hearing about Vim. <laughs> so sick of it. See, so Chris, sick of it. Chris is an Emacs user. That's all that tells you. One thing that hasn't come up in the whole Vim discussion, I don't think, oh, maybe it did, but I just reiterated because I think this is the most important point. Don't do it. The value in learning Vim is those key bindings are everywhere. You know, like our even our hedge doc, our collaborative markdown, you can put it in you can put it in Vim mode and you can use VI key bindings to move around the doc. It's just everywhere. Right. It's like the M1 Mac. It's the obvious better product. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Chiron, aka lower third, boosted in with a row of ducks. And he says, <laughs> following up on the uh we asked him, remember he said it's a real Mario and Luigi situation, which I forgot that I wanted to steal that and use that. So this was a nice reminder. Nice. He says to try and describe what a Mario and Luigi situation would actually really put me in a real Mario and Luigi situation. It's not nefarious, but it sure is something. Keep up the good work. Uh, and here is an honorable mention for Sun Microsystems and Java Duke. Gone, but never forgotten. <laughs> Certainly not on this show. Every week we're, we're mourning. No. Yeah. We're keeping it alive, man. We're keeping it alive. Um, all right. And then uh, a baller here in our parts, uh, CB boosted in on like uh, a boosting rampage that I'm a big fan of with 43,770 sats. Because I'm a back home baller. If I want something, I just holler. He says, several months ago, the company I've worked for had completely stalled out. There was no sales, no money coming in, and no paycheck. I've worked at this job for nearly a decade. As a senior lead developer for the last five years, in that time, 
I managed to exercise everything Microsoft from the company. The previous senior dev had written a good portion of the software in C-sharp targeting Windows, which is crazy when you realize we make computer vision-based software. So I got rid of everything Microsoft, 100% Linux after I was done. He continues with another 5,714 sats. Uh, So I'm now out of a job. Been firing off my CV like mad with zero replies. I took Mike's advice for a few months and I kind of took a grassroots approach, contacted local companies. I got me a few interviews, but no job. All right. Well, that's that's some good progress right there. I like that. That's the Mike recommendation. I completely agree with that. Go go with the local companies. Start there. Yeah. This is the only company that gave me an offer is a pure Microsoft shop. I'm talking Windows. It is your destiny. Teams, Outlook, Visual Studio, Sharp, Azure, Azure DevOps. I had a minor existential crisis when I found all this out. Did I commit some sort of genocide in a past life to deserve this? <laughs> I'm also surprised I didn't get any other offers. I feel as though there's only a few senior roles available, but I'm, quote, overqualified for most regular dev roles. We just had our boy. My wife is out on maternity leave, so it's the worst possible time to be without income. I have a job now, but with a huge Microsoft catch. I guess this is a challenge to my ideals. Do you stand your ground or do you feed your family? Well, I'm feeding my family, but at least I use Linux at home. You know, I think CB, God, I know this is easy for me to say, but if I was in your position, I think I would try to take this as an opportunity to just live the Microsoft life for a while. When I was acquired by Linux Academy, can you imagine that change from going from like a small team of four or five in a tiny little small LLC to then joining a company of hundreds of people that had VC funding that was growing like crazy. And so I had to just have a mind shift. I went, this isn't what I envisioned, but this is also an opportunity for me to get reacquainted with this world. And I learned so much with that mind, with that mindset. And I think I'm better at the independent thing now because of it. Just like I think you might be better at the Linux thing after you've really lived the other way for a while. So you truly understand what it's good and bad at. And then you can approach it from a real honest angle, which is really what's going to be valuable in the market. For sure. Yeah. And congrats on the baby boy. Um, yeah. But the other thing is when, if you actually do this for a couple of years, you can now pitch yourself to whatever your next gig is, your next job is as I'm a Microsoft expert, I'm a Linux expert, and you can basically be the guy who can bridge those two worlds. And there are a lot of places because Microsoft is just giving you those Azure credits, man. They're just, (laughs) the first 20 hits are free. I have a feeling if you can just meditate on, you know, the glory that is vBasic, I know you're doing C-sharp, but I thought it was funny. For a couple of years, you're probably going to be in a super strong position. And plus, your little boy is going to need a lot of food. (laughs) Yeah, they they just eat more. They just eat more and more. And my, my understanding of, uh, as, a, as a divorce man, I can tell you, uh, wives do not like it when there's no money. <laughs> That's true, too. That is that is also true. Uh, CB had to also come in with uh, 2,000 sats just to kind of... Uh, this is where he loses me. Yeah. Share his opinion on Orville. Ugh. I want to give my thoughts on Orville. I think it does well because it is a TNG clone. Every other new show nowadays is always trying to be like the big reveal, a big twist, generate social media buzz drive engagement, etc. The Oroville is predictable, straightforward, cookie-cutter-based stories. And I love it. It's bright, it's colorful, the characters, the characters are passionate and positive and look out for each other. They get excited about things like first contact. I agree with some of that. I saw this boost last night when I was preparing the show, and I thought, all right, honey, let's watch some Oroville. And so I watched the episode, 
where their federation is trying to strike an alliance with a patriarchal society that hates men. And so they have the captain and all of the men pretend like they just do grunt work. And so for 45 minutes of the show, they lie to this other species about the role of men in their, in the human society. And the entire time you're just smacking your forehead going, why are they lying to them? How is this treaty going to work if they sign the treaty? And then there's a big reveal that, Oh, sorry, surprise. Actually men have a role in society. Like, how is this going to work? And I'm just the entire time. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. This is clearly not going to work. And now that episode still has really good moments in it. But every single time I watch the Orville, I go to my, I, I, I'm saying out loud, like this doesn't make any sense. Or, or like they do things that are really kind of dark. Like the doctor pressures the robot into changing himself and it's twisted. And it's it, like, if you take yourself out of the character, it's, it's a twisted, dark thing to watch. And I'm just constantly, I have that experience when I watch the Orville. I have yet to watch it. I did watch, I started to watch the first episode. It seemed okay, but I, I will put this on my list. I mean, I'm watching it slowly it is um there are i say also good moments in the show and as the seasons go on it gets better every time with the orville the first few episodes of the season i'm a little shaky on and by the end of the season i'm like oh i'd like some more of that that's how it goes every single time we're at discovery it's the opposite first couple episodes of the season i'm like okay you got me midway or by the end i'm like this damn show these who are the hell writes this thing right they lose me so at least it has that uh, and he goes on to CB goes on to say with another 2001 sets, the Orville isn't perfect, but it was the best until strange new worlds came along. I like both shows and that's allowed, right? Yeah, I think that is allowed. Um, and then our last boost just came in from <laughs> George Orbings with 4,444 sats. Here's how it goes. Hey, 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 you got to pay more sats if you're going to infringe on my copyright. Here. I know, Let's, right? Hey. I know. Actually, George Orr is pretty funny, too. It is pretty good, though. I like it. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars, then the Orville, then Star Trek, fight me, Trekkies. Yeah, I, I, I would oh, reverse that. Hang I would on. reverse Takufma, that. Takufma, what are you doing? You got a minute? You got to go <laughs> take this guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mr. Quackers boosted in with a row of ducks saying thanks. Uh, Cospeland also boosted in. Uh, and asked if we've tried Google's GitHub alternative, which I have to admit, I have not. No, because they're going to kill my next show. Why would I, I even bother? <laughs> if or, you'd like to... Yeah, yeah. Or they'll have me arrested for writing some bug. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's the dark twist now. There's always that. You're, you know, you take the wrong picture and... You, oh, God. I would get so screwed if my business account got uh, shut Actually, because I know you put this on YouTube. It was totally the right decision to kill Waze and Reader. And I apologize for ever criticizing Google. Oh, oh no. Oh, God, I hope they don't kill Waze. Don't say that. They already killed Waze. No. Oh, I'm thinking Wave. I, it, it's so dead, I can't remember the name anymore. Yeah. Oh, the trauma is inflicted on us by a company that pretends to be a kindergarten, but is really a billion, multi-billion dollar behemoth. But they've got rainbow colors in their logo. And they'll be really nice to you if they invite you to their Chelsea office and let you play with Legos and give you lots and lots of coffee. They put socially accurate and, uh, I'd say, prescient art on their website. So... They've got to be good. By the way, my my new TV is a Google TV, and I'm very aware that it is definitely listening to my son be extremely aggressive in Mario Tennis. Oof. All right. If you'd like to send us a boost, go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. I like Fountain. We're building in uh, Podverse into our website. It's great. Castomatic is fantastic as well. Uh, they all work. You just need one. That's, you could also just get, grab Breeze and not even uh, not even switch podcast apps. It's all listed, newpodcastapps.com. 
Boostergram. Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you'd like to send the good people before it gets? Of course. I'd like to send everyone to at Dominico on Twitter. And for George R. Binks, may the light of Kalish send you on a better path. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I like invoking the name of Kalish on people, upon people, right? It He's a great works warrior. really well at the bank, too. They, they love it. <laughs> Will the wrath of yeah. Kalish be upon your head and your family? <laughs> Sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> All right, links to what we talked about today are at coder.show slash 480. We do the show live on jupiter.tube on Mondays. We're doing it now at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, new time. Come see how it fits. Try, try it on. See if it's comfskies. Also, you can join our matrix, coder.show slash matrix. That'll take you to our room. And of course, our contact form, coder.show slash contact. Your feedback's a big part of the show. We'd love to hear from you. And a big, huge thank you to our Coder QA team and our Jupiter Party members for keeping us independent. We appreciate you. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of Coder Radio. See you right back here next week. <laughs>